this morning, before we dive into the message, you may have grabbed a resolution back there along with your sermon notes. And um, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to have some exciting news to share with you, some, some personal news. But this morning, I have some heavy news to share with you. And I'm going to explain what that is. So if you grabbed one of those resolutions, I'd encourage you to, uh, not that I'm going to go through all that uh, today, but I'd encourage you to take that home and to go through that on your own, to go through with your family, go through with your spouse. Um, So I want to explain this. In light of the Q&A we had several weeks ago at our Sunday night, um, last time of doing the Bible Institute, we had some questions that you all asked me about uh, the state of the denomination, the state of the American church, and I answered those questions. And if you missed that, that's that was recorded. That's still up on the podcast. You can listen uh, to what I said there if, if you want to go back. Um, and you may recall a couple weeks ago that I briefly addressed one of the core issues of what's being fought in this liberal debate, uh, this liberal drift that's going on in our own denomination. And that one that I talked about a few weeks ago is how Scripture teaches that women are not to be pastors. This is not a chauvinistic thing, but our denomination is debating broadening ourselves to now ordain women, which would be in clear contradiction to to clear passages of Scripture. And if you weren't here when I spoke about that, again, it was recorded. Uh, It was right before the service a couple weeks ago. You can listen to that on the podcast. The thing is that our denomination wants to ignore the clear teaching of the Bible in order to favor today's court of opinion. They don't want to necessarily follow the Lord when it gets difficult. They want to please people and make it not hard for themselves. And so today I want to address a second issue. It's it's worth fighting for when it comes to the the doctrine and the issue of uh, compromising on Scripture, ordaining women as pastors. It's also worth fighting for on this second uh, issue that I'm going to talk about today. And that is on abortion. Now, you may not follow the news, you may not understand what's happening since Roe v. Wade, but a lot of pro-lifers since Roe v. Wade have become pro-choicers. They are now the ones standing up, stopping laws from criminalizing abortion in states. And it's pro-lifers who are saying, we need to treat women as victims, never hold them accountable with equal penalties as murderers for their own children that they choose to abort. It is our denomination, our Southern Baptist president, and many other pro-life organizations that are doing this since Roe v. Wade has been overturned. And it's not all right. The reason I'm taking time to address this matter is because as your pastor, you've called me to go to the association of our local churches and represent you. You've called me to represent you statewide to 16 to 1,700 churches in the NBC. And you've also called me to represent you at the Southern Baptist Convention to 47,000 churches with my vote and with standing on the truth of God's word. And tomorrow, I very possibly will be in debates with some NBC leaders as I go to Jeff City for the role I was appointed for in October. Let me explain what this document you hold in your hands is, and the reason why I'm taking time to explain this to the church. I can stand firmly in the world and in the denomination on doctrinal matters. I can be faithful in doing that, but if I don't teach my own household, if I don't teach my spiritual family, this church, these things, and I've failed as a pastor. A pastor must manage his own household well. That's why I'm teaching you about these things as I'm getting involved in this. And by God's grace, I cannot back down. And I certainly long for your prayers just as that, um, that scripture verse said this morning, because there are physiological effects when you take these types of stands. 
your friends will abandon you. I've been through things before. I won't get into all that this morning, but uh, there's physiological effects when you take a stand like this and everybody is going to abandon you when you stand on the word, or many will. And um, you have to take that to God. And this morning I was laying on the ground right there in prayer for half an hour asking God for strength for what I have to say today. This is not popular what I'm going to say, but it's the truth of God's word. And you've called me as your pastor to teach you what the Bible says. Not to teach you what I want or just to tell you what would be more palatable or more popular. So first of all, abortion is wrong and it's sinful. It is the murder of a life. But the, and the Bible teaches that. And for roughly 1,900 years of the 2,000 years since Jesus died and was resurrected, the church, 95% of the time, up to the last 100 years, has clearly stood for life. And they did not only stand against abortion, you can go back and study, they stood against contraception as well. They stood against the modern lie of the last 100 years that Margaret Sanger has created of planning parenthood. And churches and denominations, one by one, have fallen down and done the exact same thing that she taught. They've done it in different ways. They've said, well, we're not going to support uh, surgical abortions or thing, but we're going to practice other forms of contraception, but do the exact same thing. Embrace her lie of family planning rather than trust that if God is the creator of life, we as human beings have no business on trying to control what he chooses to do. While many Christians are opposed to abortion, like the ancient Israelites, we practice infanticide in other ways and try to prevent lives. The Israelites did this time and time again when they left God and they wandered and they declined as a nation. We've seen some of that in the Sunday Night Bible Institute, if you were part of that. We're doing the exact same thing as the people of God today. We view children as liabilities. And consequences, we don't want them to be gifts from the Lord. We treat them as an excuse. We choose our own comfort or our standard of living or our readiness rather than trusting that if God is the creator of life, that he will give life at the appropriate time. It comes down to a basic fundamental belief about what we believe about God, the gospel, and if we're truly going to walk by faith or worship our own idols. I'm not standing against abortion and family planning because I'm trying to make a statement to you or anybody else. Already, the singleness inexperience excuse has been thrown in my face, as it has for years, while I've been told I should not pastor while I'm unmarried or teach about certain matters. But my response to that is, what about Jesus? What about Paul? What about many of the prophets? Marital status does not mean that you are then qualified to speak about certain matters. You must stand on the truth of God's word. So here's the story of, of what happened this week to let you know how the battle's beginning and why I ask you for your prayers, because this is a fight that I cannot back away from. For months, I have made posts and articles and study and coming to the conclusion that the core issue of the SBC and the Western Church turning away from the Lord today is turning to the mantra, just preach the gospel, which is exactly, if you study history, what happened in Nazi Germany. Hitler told them, just preach the gospel. Don't get involved in political matters. Don't get into realms where your views on what the Bible says are going to make others uncomfortable. Just preach that Jesus will save you from your sins and avoid the rest of the book. Pastor, that's conspiracy theory. Go back and study history and see if this is not a pattern of all nations 
Because Moses declared to Israel in Deuteronomy 28.30, the blessings the Lord has set before us and the cursings. He literally was telling them to choose blessing and not cursing as a nation, as a people, to choose life and not death. And he literally was referring to the life and the propagation of their nation to continue to exist. They would shrink and decline if they chose to reject God. A nation gets what they deserve when they reject the Lord, and judgment begins with the house of God. Who cares what the nation says? We cannot make a lost person act saved. But Christians cannot back down from what God's word says. The fight for the gospel only mantra was defined, even as the SBC president, Bart Barber, said this Thursday at Canaan Baptist Church, to an address in our association while he was preaching and butchering the text of Matthew 18, 15 through 18, which ironically tells you how to deal with sin and confront one another in your sin. He created that into his own message of principles and flatitudes and niceries, but he did not even address the very thing it was saying. President Barber claims that pushing the gospel forward is the mark of faithfulness and fruitfulness. His definition is devoid of any success being rooted in the glorifying of God and His standing upon His word. Rather, all he's concerned about is growing our numbers as a denomination through evangelism. Shut up about everything else. Keep everything else to yourself and just grow the churches. Is that the gospel? Is not the glory of God the center of true success and not results? I talked to President, President Barber one-on-one -on -one this Thursday night. And I have engaged him on social media and discussion for at least a couple of years in disagreement to the, thing, the stands he takes particularly related to abortion. I did not go to him yelling or screaming. I went to him broken and encouraging him as a brother to repent for the action he has taken of endorsing the stopping of the criminalization of abortion in Louisiana and an article he wrote defending it and our ERLC, our political action wing of the Southern Baptist Convention were very involved in that as well as I think it was 80 pro-life organizations. Well, they're not pro-life if they're going to be stopping what would have protected children's lives. I asked him to repent as a brother in Christ. Not arrogantly. His response brazenly was that he had nothing to repent of. He claims the scriptures teach cities of refuge and the church should be that and that they should not stand for the criminalization of abortion. Rather, they should say that every woman is a victim of abortion and not culpable for her own decisions if she signs on that dotted line. We're not talking about a woman that's dragged off by her family or her boyfriend and drugged and taken somewhere to have an abortion. Unfortunately, that happens sometimes. We are talking about when a woman makes a decision to abort her child, there should be equal protections for the life of the unborn child under our law, just as there is for any two-year-old who will be murdered by their mother. But he doesn't see anything to repent of because he doesn't think that they are truly culpable for their actions. Rather, in his view, it's only the doctor that performs the abortion that is the murderer. Gospel issues versus secondary matters. It is the continual debate of our compromised churches in the West. I firmly believe that biblically the only secondary matters are issues of conscience that the Scripture allows us. What type of diet are you going to eat? You want to eat the Jewish dietary law? Well, you can, but that's an issue of conscience. You see, that's different. But when the Bible speaks to a matter, it's on the same level as a gospel issue because God has spoken. 
We cannot compromise it. I'm already being requested into a moderated confrontation based on my comments to show me my sin for the extreme view and causing division in an effort to silence me. I'm being told, keep this conviction to yourself. Don't say anything. You're going to hurt the church by preaching this. You're going to be divisive and not unifying. People are going to leave the church. You need to shut up. Since when did the preaching of the Word of God not become our standard as pastors? We are called to preach the whole gospel, the whole counsel of God, not to simply say what the court of public opinion would prefer. As I said, tomorrow I'm going to the state level. There may be discussions there. In June, I'm going to the SBC annual meeting in New Orleans with that resolution that you hold in your hands in hand to place that before our 47,000 churches and to tell them we need to stand and agree with God's word. And we need to vote President Bart Barber out and we need to choose to stand on what God's word says and that should be the end of the story. I fully expect that when I submit that resolution, it will most likely get shoved to the side. It's too legalistic. And so I'll have to go find out, based on the bureaucracy, when the two minutes are that I can stand up in that several days to actually appeal. And they always plan it perfectly so there won't be any opposition to them. Gospel issues versus secondary matters. Is that really what it is? Or are we refusing to stand on God's word because we're afraid what the cost will be? I know that this is a provocative issue. I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's something we as Christians and pastors do not usually speak on. But as Christians, we are not just called to preach the gospel and throw the rest of scripture aside and call it a secondary issue because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is certainly the only thing that saves us. Believing in his blood spilled for our sins and his raising to life that made our redemption possible. But I want to be crystal clear in saying that I am not saying that I am right and everybody else is lost sinners or false prophets. No, I believe many are brothers and sisters in Christ that are deceived and they're going to respond kicking and screaming with being confronted with this. I believe that many are brothers and sisters that have been taken captive by the hollow and deceptive philosophies of the world rather than being set free from the stronghold, demolishing power of the truth of God's word, which it is God's word that is our standard of all matters in faith and practice, period. Not a statement of faith, not the consensus of the Southern Baptist Convention. What does God's word say? The world and the denomination will likely continue to try to silence me. Already I've been labeled, as I said, divisive, unloving, need to shut up, be quiet, keep it to myself. You're going to harm the church. But on the authority of God's word, I must continue to stand regardless of the price, regardless of the cost. Jesus said, if a man does not take up his cross and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. If they persecuted me, our Lord says, they will persecute you. Why did they persecute Jesus? Because he told them the truth. This isn't about me being right and somebody else being wrong. I'm broken for the fact that fellow brothers are running away and will not stand alongside me. What this is about is that God has spoken. And when I call attention to it, many will probably reject it and they'll come after the messenger. So it has been for prophets and missionaries and pastors throughout the ages. Believers, we cannot be afraid of conflict. We are called to contend for the faith. In the short epistle of Jude that takes place right before Revelation in your Bible, the writer there, Jude, is the half-brother of Jesus. 
And he says in the opening verses, he wanted to write them an encouraging letter on the common salvation we share. But he says, while I wanted to do that, I found it necessary to write to you and tell you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend is a fighting word, a boxing type of term. To fight and stand for what matters. Jude said that, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and all the Word of God is inspired. God's Word does not always encourage us. Sometimes it convicts us. Believers, every one of us still sins as believers. And it doesn't matter what your sin is, whether it's this thing I'm addressing this morning or not. The church is to be the place to point everyone to the healing and the truth of the gospel. That, Regardless of whatever your past is, Jesus can give you new life. He forgives. You confess it to him. It doesn't matter what your particular sin is. But we cannot avoid calling sin, sin, just because it makes people angry. Every one of us still sins, and as believers, we are called to live lives of continual repentance because we're never going to be perfect as we follow Christ. I've been wrong before. I've taught wrong things before. And when the Holy Spirit has convicted me, I've had to publicly repent. And it's almost ironic because when I've repented, I've lost even more people. I've lost even more friends. been rejected by even more mentors if you stand on the truth of God's Word. I will never be a perfect pastor. But I am called to stand on God's word. And I can't follow opinion rather than the word. The same is for every single one of you. There is a battle for the truth of the authority of God's word in both our faith and our practice. And at some point very soon, it will likely cost our church. It will probably already cost our church partnerships and revitalization because fellow pastors are not happy with me. It could cost us our tax exemption status before long because I've broken laws several years ago in regard to that. Because under the Obama years, it was illegal to preach the word of God on particular matters. And my fellow friend and pastor, who I highly respect, but on this issue, he he believed the same as me, but he would not address politics or homosexuality clearly because if he did, he would open the church up to a hate crime legislation and losing of tax exempt status. But I would preach and fill in for him, and I would never back down from saying what the Bible says. Those days are probably not far from coming back in the regime that's in power right now. The Lord has not told us to soften his message of rebuke and simply approach it with a tolerant and winsome eagle, lest heaven forbid we should be unnice and open ourselves up to people not liking us. We've been called to speak the truth in love. Never does it say that we are to be nice and sacrifice the truth just so that we don't hurt somebody's feelings. If that's how we live, we will lead many people straight to hell. It will likely cost us at some point leaving the denomination. I don't believe that is yet. I am committed, as I said, to going this year and fighting the fight in the different ways that I can. As you've sent me to represent you as your pastor and to stand against the liberal drift. And this resolution you hold in your hands is the key way I plan on doing that. At the state and national level, in addition to casting my votes as a messenger on your behalf for what the Bible says. 
But unless there is evidence of repentance, and I sadly do not see there being any, the time to leave the SBC shall come. You as the church body, church members, will have to make that decision. I cannot make that decision for you. But you've called me to serve as your shepherd. And I'm called to serve as an under-shepherd of Christ. A common ranch hand who simply looks to Jesus who owns all the sheep and to tell them what the chief shepherd has said. You've entrusted me with teaching you this book. My primary responsibility is to feed you what it says. Will you follow that if and when the time comes? So what I'm asking you to do today is to take a copy of this resolution draft home. It is pretty much completed. I still need to go back and make sure that uh, scripture references are correct and typos and all that type of thing. This is a very technical document. But take this home. Read it through with a Bible open. Sit down with your spouse, with your kids. Discuss this. And if you have questions or concerns, please get back with me. Let's talk about those. If you're married, I want to talk to couples together on this issue. Um, on a matter of this particular nature. And next week, we're going to have a great opportunity to do that with our fellowship after sunrise service and, and our uh, sunrise breakfast. Or you're also free to shoot me a text or email me. But I want us to pause now and pray, because as important as sharing this information is with you, I still must share God's word with you today. It's Palm Sunday, and we're going to look at that in a moment. So if you pause with me and pray... Lord, we praise you for the full pardon of our sins that you have given us in Jesus. You've made us your people. And you are faithful and just to cleanse us afresh when we confess our sin to you. Jesus, we thank you that you are the lion of the tribe of Judah. You are not weak. And you've been resurrected from the grave a grave that could not contain you, and that you sit today as our mediator at our Father's right hand today. We thank you for that. We ask you to give us boldness and courage, whatever the cost, to our honor, our reputation, our finances, our well-being. Are you not worthy of it, Lord? You are. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This morning... Matthew chapter 21, if you would turn there, taking a break from our uh, time together in Nehemiah, which is such a powerful book as well, but we are in this, this time of the year where we're looking toward the week in which Jesus suffered and died for us. He went to the cross he was buried, and then he was resurrected for our redemption. He gives us that promise of new life. So if you're in uh, Matthew chapter 21 this morning, if you are willing and able, if you would stand with me, uh, we are going to stand for the reading of God's word, and we're going to read verses 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. 
All this will be done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down their branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when they had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have protected praise? Then he left them and went out to the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I ask that you would open our hearts to hear from you this morning. I, I know, Lord, we've had great Sunday school time. I know we've just looked at some heavy things. But Holy Spirit, calm our hearts, I ask. Help us to behold Jesus on Palm Sunday and see how this message applies to us today. Help us to hear clearly from what you have said. Feed us from your mouth, I pray, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. If you want to grab your notes, there's a, a number of lessons, I believe, we're going to see in this passage this morning. First of all, let's look again at verses 1 through 3 in this passage. And there is going to be a number of blanks for you to fill in today. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So the first thing I want us to see this morning is the Lord Jesus had need of a donkey, this foal and its mother. Doesn't that kind of just strike you as amazing? Jesus had need of something, and then he sends the disciples, and the people give it to him. But that Jesus needed this donkey to fulfill prophecy and to come in as what's going to happen here on Palm Sunday. We then see in verses 4 and 5 that this was done because of prophecy. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Secondly this morning, in Jesus' first coming, when he came, he came to suffer and die on the cross. We look forward now to his second coming when he returns to rapture his bride. But in Jesus' first coming, which is what we have here, he came lowly. 
He came as a servant. And that leads to the some point under it that I want to make. Jesus came sacrificing himself for his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, we learn about what marriage is meant to be and how Christians are spent, uh, meant to reflect it to the world. The way in which husband and wife have a strong marriage is based on, and this is not in my notes, but let's flip over uh, together to Ephesians chapter 5 and find the, the last verse there. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33. You know, making marriage work is actually fairly simple. In all the training I've had for premarital counseling and um, sitting in on some of that and stuff in ministry training, I can tell you this is the same passage you go to every time in marital counseling. Whether it's premarital counseling, whether it's problems in marriage, whether it's they're just about to have a divorce, or they're ju- they've just had a divorce and seeking to heal and move forward from that, you always go to this passage. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular, speaking to men here, so love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Romance is not what builds the strength of your marriage. A man is supposed to love his wife the way that Jesus loved the church. It's really not that complicated. It's just not easy. You're to seek to serve her and to protect her and honor her. And you go back up in Ephesians 5. That's what this teaches. And what then a Christian wife is called to do is to respect her husband. If, if her husband's living like Jesus, I don't think she's going to have much of a problem respecting or submitting to you. Those words aren't that provocative then when we understand their context in Scripture. Man is to be the initiator and to seek to protect her. He is to study her and find out he can best protect her and serve her. And she is to respond to him as he does that. And the entire basis of this is how Jesus came and he sacrificed himself, sacrificed himself pardon me, <clears throat> for his bride. That's why Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem. That's why he's going to go through this. Because he looks at you and me who are part of his body, who have professed faith in him. And he loved us enough to sacrifice himself and go through all of that suffering for his bride. Back to our main passage. We come to verses 6 through 8. So the disciples went... Notice that all they do is they're going to obey Jesus. That's all we're called to do is obey him. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. And others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. I want us to notice here, thirdly, there's a multitude that honors Jesus. Huge crowd. Multitude of people that are honoring him, but by the end of the week, they're not going to honor him. They're going to yell, crucify him. That may have been some of the same people. It may not have been. We don't know. But there nonetheless is a multitude that honors him. Underneath that, you have a subpoint. It's easy to get caught up in the fanfare. It's very easy to get caught up in the fanfare. Many people love Jesus' ministry because he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He did miracles. He was an entertaining speaker and teacher and preacher. And they saw him as hopefully being their political freedom from Rome. A lot of people got caught up in fanfare. A multitude. But again, what's going to happen by the end of the week? Fourthly, look at verse 9. Then the multitudes who went before those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
They're saying the right things here, are they not? Fourthly, notice Jesus is the son of David. He's the rightful heir to the throne. He is the Messiah. But what that looked like was not what they thought it would look like. He was going to begin a spiritual kingdom and wait until he would then bring his literal kingdom. He has instructed his church for the last 2,000 years and until he returns to begin our prayers with, Father, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for that. We wait for the day when he is ushered in all his glory to the throne when he returns. Fifthly, this morning, look at verse 10. Verse 10. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? Look at verse 11 as well. So the multitudes said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, it struck me, I think, for the first time, something here that I don't think I'd ever picked up on before. Notice, fifthly, they didn't see Jesus clearly. They didn't see him clearly. They said he's a prophet, but he was way more than that. They don't see that. But then there's a subpoint there, which this is what struck me this week. Notice they aren't mocking the little town he came from. They do that later, don't they? They say nothing good could come out of Nazareth. They don't do that here. They did not see clearly, and notice they're not mocking the little town he came from. Probably because they think that his entry is going to benefit them and a revolution's about to start. Sixthly this morning, verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. I think this is very important based on what I said earlier today. Verse 12 The sixth point, amidst the compromise and complacency, Jesus confronted it. He confronted it. He didn't turn a blind eye. He did not do anything as it would cause a stir. Amidst the compromise and complacency, Jesus confronted it. And notice the reason why. Verse 13. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves. The subpoint is a house of prayer. God's house is defined as being a place of prayer and seeking Him. Even the way in which we approach studying the Word of God together, we can either do that prayerfully or we can do that resistantly. God's house is to be a house of prayer. And then seventh this morning, Verses 14 through 17. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Why are they indignant? Because they're not getting the praise. Verse 16. And said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? You who have the word of God, have you not read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. So he takes a stand, and then notice what he does in verse 17. And he left them, and he went out to the city of Bethany, and he lodged there. 
This is how that Passion Week begins, that Jesus is going to go through. So the seventh point this morning is, the blind and the lame receive healing from Jesus. The seeing and the mobile miss him. Those who physically could see, those who physically could walk, they miss him. They miss the point of his message. They miss what he's saying. They focus on themselves and their own idols and their own agenda. So I know this is a shorter message this morning, but it's a simple, simple takeaway. I've titled the message, Do You See Our Substitute? Jesus came to be our substitute in our place, to go to the cross for us. And so the main point is simply, our substitute has come. Do we see him for who he is? Or like the multitude, are we praising him with a false view? Maybe you have another takeaway the Lord has, by his spirit, put on your heart this morning. I encourage you to write that down. Because when we write stuff down, we have a, a tendency to remember it better than if we don't. And then this morning, I'm going to end service a little differently. Rather than having a song of, uh, uh, that we're going to play of invitation, I'm just going to play a song on my iPad here in a minute. And our altars are open. If there's anything you need to bring before God today, if there's anything that you need to confess to Him, or if you do not know Him as Lord and Savior, simply respond to the Holy Spirit working in your heart.